going to take a little detour now for a quick half hour um, in order to look specifically at Russia. And the reason we're doing that is that for decades, certainly, as you all know, beginning with the Cold War as the Soviet Union, Russia has been America's number one adversary, uh, including in the information space. Uh, while there are rivals to Russia today in the anti-U.S. information, disinformation space, certainly China's coming on very fast, and uh, Iran is a player, and there are others, it still is the case that the extent of Russia's efforts to block U.S. information efforts through censorship, internet blocking, intimidation of journalists, etc., and its own information, disinformation offensive aimed at the United States and its partners, the Troll Farms, International Broadcasting, Cutout Media Organizations, Diplomatic Vitriol, etc. Uh, Russia still far exceeds the efforts of any other country. And let's also not forget that the term disinformation is widely attributed as having come from Russian, disinformatia, as an important element of Russian intelligence called active measures, activnia meropriatia, uh, which is not about intelligence collection per se, but was about subversion and has been around for a very long time. Um, for a time, a brief time, it looked as though the U.S.-Russia relationship might turn out differently. Uh, as the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed, there were very real hopes and perhaps even possibilities that the thaw in relations that began under Reagan and Gorbachev would in fact intensify through the 1990s. And there were elements of that, including the fairly good personal relationship between Boris Yeltsin and Bill Clinton, for instance. Um, but in the, by the end of the decade, we were in a very, very different place that only deepened as we got into the 2000s. Uh, so why didn't this relationship continue to improve? What went wrong there? What can we learn from what happened then that might inform us in the current situation and perhaps looking at a Russia of the future uh, will be the subject of this discussion. And there's no better person than to help us understand this than Brian Whitmore. Uh, Brian is an assistant professor of practice at the University of Texas Arlington's McDonald, McDowell Center for Global Studies, and he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's also the founder and author of a must-listen podcast, uh, the Power Vertical blog. I'm sorry, the Power Vertical blog and the Power Vertical podcast, which focuses on Russian affairs. You had Vinman on last week, and uh, who, who's uh, this week? You had, had Mikhail Zigar on this week. Misha Zigar on this week. And previously, and I know Brian from this, was a senior Russia analyst for Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, and also did his time as a Moscow correspondent. So, um, uh, Brian, over to you to sort of set the context for us, and then a little quick Q&A over the course of the next half hour. Thank you. Th thank you, Jeff. It's good to see you again. Thanks to University of Texas Austin, uh, for allowing me to represent the University of Texas Arlington um, here. What I want to go through is just a series of broad points to kind of um, set the stage for the discussion, and then I can kind of dive into each each of them in turn in 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 the discussion. And this is all um, this is the framework for a book I'm working on right now. The working title is Russian Illusions: Lessons from the Post Cold War for the New Cold War, and it's effectively what we got wrong in the '90s. 
Um, so I'm going to just kind of go through my laundry list of what we got wrong in the 90s, um, and then we can kind of dive into each of those in turn. The first thing we got wrong is that we thought the problem was communism when the problem was really imperialism. So when communism fell and the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a sense of problem solved. Um, and any lingering problems in the Russian Federation or other post-Soviet states were kind of the remnants of communism, where what we should have been looking at is the deep-seated political cultural notion of imperialism. Um, it's been said about the Russian state, it's hard to say if the empire created a state or the state created an empire. And this is how deeply ingrained imperialism is in Russia. Um, it was not during the Putin time that Russia was arming both sides in the Georgian Civil War. Um, it was not during the Putin time when Russia provoked separatist conflicts in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Transnistria. Um, it was not during the Putin time when Russia was arming so-called patriotic groups in Crimea. This was all under the democratic administration or the quote-unquote democratic administration of Boris Yeltsin during this period of wonderful friendship between Bill Clinton and, and, and Boris Yeltsin. So the first problem is we, we fail to see the essence of the real problem. The real essence was Russian imperialism. The problem wasn't communism. Communism was a manifestation of Russian imperialism. The second is that we fail to see the national security threat of kleptocracy. Um, Russia was privatizing. That was seen as a good thing. We, 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 uh, we believed that as a market economy came into existence in Russia, that would automatically lead to a more benevolent Russia, where we failed to see that this kleptocratic, na the kleptocratic nature of the system was going to become a national security threat. And that while Yeltsin did not weaponize Russian kleptocracy, it set the stage for Putin to do so. Um, there, we all remember the famous, um, uh, I think it was an intelligence report that pre Vice, then Vice President Gore in a section talking about the threat of Russian corruption famously wrote BS and he didn't write BS. He wrote the full word in the margins uh, 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 at that point because it was seen that this would harm these, these, you know, the good relations that the U.S. And, 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 and the Russian Federation had at the time. So we failed to see the national security threat of, of kleptocracy. Um, and if it, it, it was, it was again during the Yeltsin time that we had things like the Bank of New York money laundering scandal which was a harbinger of things to come. Um, the, it was when we had the Mebitex scandal tied to the, uh, the reconstruction of the Kremlin. Again, this is all during the, you know, the good old days of the Yeltsin administration. None of these things happened in the, um, the Putin years. Um, the third thing is that we thought that globalization was going to be a force exclusively for good. We believed that only liberal values were going to spread on the backs of globalization. And as Russia became integrated into the global economy, the assumption was this was going to have a liberalizing influence on Russia. What we didn't see coming was that this would allow, a, allow for a vector of malign influence. Globalization could also spread illiberal ideas as easily as it could spread liberal ideas. And as soon as, um, as revanchist elements in the Russian elite figured out how to use globalization, it could be weaponized against us, and it has been weaponized against us. Finally, and this might be one of my, this is one of my most important um, main pet peeves about this. We prioritized our relationship with Russia over 
those with other Soviet states. Um, the most famous exemplar of this is the Budapest Memorandum, which Bill Clinton has recently said he regrets pressuring the Ukrainians into giving up their nuclear weapons um, in, 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 19, in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. I was in Kiev in 94 when that was signed, and the anger was palpable. People were furious. People were disappointed in the United States for doing this, for, again, for prioritizing our relations with Russia. Now, I am for nuclear nonproliferation as much as the next guy, but think of the different place we would be in right now if Ukraine had nuclear weapons right now. I don't think Russia would have been so quick to invade. Right. I also think that Ukraine probably would have been a much more responsible custodian of a nuclear arsenal than, than the Russian Federation at, at this point. Um, I'm even led to ask questions like, why did Russia automatically inherit the Soviet seat on the UN Security Council? Why, why was that such an automatic thing? Um, so we, again, and this is, these are just a couple of examples of how we prioritize our relationship with Moscow over those of the other republics. So I'll stop there, Jeff, and we can, I'm glad to dive into each and every one of these things, but these are four of the main things I think we got wrong. There are more, but in the interest of time, um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Had we gotten it more right and understood these issues more clearly, could even then have we necessarily affected a change? And let me give you my context for this. The, the, the broader question as, as Gorbachev put reforms in place and there were hints of changes in the system and there were certain things happening that were in fact positive, halting attempts at elections and some kind of representative democracy, law enforcement working more closely with Western agencies, Louis Free visiting Moscow, setting up an FBI office out of the U.S. Embassy. Jill, I'm looking at you. You were in Moscow at this time, uh, and I'm sure you'll want to jump in and, and, and come back at Brian on, on some of these things. Uh, could, could um, with all respect to these points, was there enough in place to be encouraged to make change that we could, in fact, be in a better place? That's sort of the fundamental question coming back at you, pushing back on what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I would say possibly no. Uh, mm -hmm. Possibly no, but I think we'd be in a much better place than we are right now. Um, we talked in the last couple of panels, there was talk about decolonization, and I think there was, we, and we tended to kind of conflate the Soviet Union and Russia, which reinforces the Russian imperial Narrative. Now, there's a lot of reason for this. Um, there's a lot of reason for this. A lot of it is in terms of the misunderstanding of Russian history on the part of many of us here. How many of times have we all heard, well, Ukraine's always been part of Russia? Ukraine hasn't always been part of Russia. I just gave a lecture at the University of Texas Arlington about this. Um, Ukraine was part of either the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the Grand Duchy of Lithuania for almost 600 years. It was only part of Russia for less than 200 years, right? But because we have all been taught this imperial version of Russian history, and that's the subject of an entire panel, how that happened, but basically white Russian historians populated Western European and American universities following the Bolshevik, Re Bolshevik Revolution and brought this... In 
imperial version of history with them. So we kind of, we didn't have the correct picture of this part of the world. And it's only been since the breakup of the Soviet Union that we have begun to see Ukrainian history as independent and distinct from Russian. And that's at the heart of the kind of the empire there. Russia without Ukraine can't be an empire, right? But once, but we still bought into this. And that led us to prioritize our relations with Russia, to kind of conflate the Soviet Union and Russia and see all these other countries, some of which, like, by the way, Ukraine would be the largest country in Europe for a member of the European Union. It's bigger than France, right? But to look at these, all these little kind of appendages of Russia and, and prioritize Russia. So, no, you're, you're right, Jeff, but if we had looked at this a little bit differently, back in 91, we'd be in a much better place today. We might not be in a perfect place. We probably won't, wouldn't be in a perfect place, but I think we'd be in a better place. <laughs> that applause is coming from Miroslava Gangadze. What a surprise <laughs> on, on the issue. We're, we're with you on that, Miroslava, and specifically speaking about, um, about, about Ukraine. You know, back in the 80s and the 70s, when those of us who were getting just started studying uh, Soviet Union, Soviet space at that time, uh, there was this idea out there that there were, in fact, even in the Politburo, sort of good guys and bad guys. Mm -hmm. There were the, the liberals who, who drank scotch and listened to jazz in the evening, and then there were the hardliners. And it's certainly controversial even in retrospect that those kinds of divisions existed. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 90s in Russia, were there, for want of a better word, good guys even there in the mix who, having been given more support, I'm kind of coming at my question mm -hmm. in a different way, were they even there to be reinforced or were we misled even along those lines that there were those to run? Let me just expand on that a little bit more. Take, if you take just the KGB itself, one narrative about the Committee for State Security is that there was a, a, a Western-oriented progressive, which sounds like a strange word to use for the KGB, element that knew the West. They were in the first chief directorate living in the West. They knew it was game over for the Soviet Union a long time before the Soviet Union fell apart. And they were looking at a different kind of Russia or Soviet Union, even if they weren't anticipating the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, that would be that would somehow fit more into the global community of nations. And names are mentioned such as uh, uh, General uh, Kalugin, for instance, Oleg Kalugin, and that they lost out in the this crucial period of the early 90s to the other faction, which was the kleptocracy, evolved into. Putin's side of the KGB and that side of the Siloviki together with organized crime really and remnants of communist party power and elements of the military uh, were took over, that there was this fight that took place. What's your take on that? No, that's a, that's a great question, Jeff. First of all, with, the, with regard to the elite, I would say it's not binary. Um, it's a matter of degree. Um, you did have people in the Russian elite in the 1990s who genuinely wanted a European democratic Russia that was going to respect the sovereignty of its neighbors. Boris Nemtsov, our common friend, comes to mind. But I think those people were the minority. I think we had gradations of this. We had people who were very good at pretending 
that they were pro-Western, um, using laptops and having red hair and speaking perfect English, not to pick, you know, pick on Anatoly Chubayas by name, um, were examples of this. I remember somebody, a foreign correspondent who I, whose name I will not mention right now, who was, was talking about how how uh, Sergei Ivanov was actually a very pro-Western guy because he's, you know, he's, he's very charming and he speaks good English. And I said, that's what they teach them in KGB school, for God's sakes. Of course, he's supposed to pretend he's pro-Western, right? That's what they do. As far as the KGB, Jeff, you're right. The KGB were the first ones in the 80s to see that the Soviet Union was in deep doo-doo, right? But what did they do? The KGB as an organization launched something called Operation Luke or Operation Sunbeam. And this was an effort to, A, recruit agents in the West, and B, move money out of the Soviet Union into the West, into shell companies set up by these agents in the West that will be run by trusted agents. Oh, and oh, by the way, those shell companies are still operating um, throughout, throughout Europe. So I don't think it was a sense that there were, the, 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 the people in the KGB who were the quote unquote good guys, the Kalugans, Kalugan emigrated. He lives in, he lives in London. Right. Um, so the, I don't think there really was inside the KGB, there was ever a chance. Now, I, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong on that. I would love to be proven wrong on that, but that's not what I see. I see the KGB saw where this was going and they set themselves up for the next stage again, because it wasn't about communism. It's about imperialism. And that's deeply ingrained and embedded in the KGB subculture. I'd like to invite uh, people in the audience. We have a lot of Russia specialists here and people with background in Russia. Jill, I mentioned you already. Mark, others, if you'd want to chime in and react to and comment. Danila Gaparovich has joined us here from Voice of America, uh, for instance. Mark, let's, let's start with you and be quick. We're doing this for a podcast, so we want to be crisp. <laughs> well, I'd like to say that, uh, Brian, what you just said was being discussed in the canteen in Munich in 1982, precisely along those lines. And I got quite a lecture from a number of grizzled editors and former refuseniks on exactly that point. And you're absolutely right. We, there was a movement, well, very much the Reagan administration that we are against communism, but we need to resurrect nationalism. Nationalism somehow in religion is going to, are going to be very positive. So yes, we were caught in that. But my quick comment is you're absolutely right. And it's a very, very important point that you're making. Uh, Andres? Wait for your mic there. Wait for your mic. The Balts were saying this the whole time and nobody listened to them. The Balts are always right. And yes. we should listen to the Balts all the time. <laughs> Danila, did you have a thought on this. Please introduce yourself since you've just joined us when you get the microphone. Uh, Danila Galprovich, VOA Russian Service, Voice of America. But, I mean, uh, what would be your reaction to more sophisticated cases like, like Mr. Gusinski, who was the creator of first Russian independent TV, at the same time employing Filip Denisovich Babkov? Uh, the general from 5th KGB department. I mean, it was not that uh, clear, uh, how to say, uh, what's the place of this KGB generals in, in this new Russia, because uh, oligarchs mainly employed them for sometimes very market purposes. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on that? Well, I think it's emblematic of the world that the, the so-called new Russia was in the 1990s. I mean, remember, the oligarchs were kind of created as a class by the KGP in the latter stage of the Soviet Union. 
in order to basically create this loyal class of oligarchs that they could control. And I'm not speaking of Gusinski. I don't know the, the history of Gusinski, but I know how this was with, with other oligarchs at that time. The, then the Soviet Union collapses and the oligarchs suddenly had the upper hand and you had people like Gusinski hiring KGB officers to be their security and their intelligence. And then when Putin came back to power, this flipped again. It just, it, it just is emblematic of the kind of very morally ambiguous situation we had in, 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 in the post-Soviet Union. In a lot of ways, these oligarchs needed these former KGB people to survive. I don't think, I think there were very few in the KGB that truly wanted a liberal democratic Russia. I think that they all dreamed of a return to the national, to the security state. And I think they were just biding their time at that time. Miroslava. Uh, thank you. Brian, I would say my name at, under every word you just said uh, during the entire panel. Um, my question is, we talked about, we talk about the past and uh, what kind of mistakes we or Western community made. Um, how about the current and the future? Um, what kind of mistakes are we making right now and how can we, uh, what would be the best approach to deal with Russia and, uh, and surrounding countries uh, now? Uh, specifically, um, I, I just wanted to uh, emphasize the issue of uh, Russian language and uh, uh, U.S. public diplomacy, VOA, Radio Liberty are still putting a lot of money and effort on developing Russian language programming and towards the region as well. So how do you see that? And what would be the best approach um, uh, today to, to, to this issue? Thanks. Thank you, Miroslav. As, as is often the case, you anticipate exactly where I, I'd, I'd like to go. We've, we've sat on panels so, so often, we can often finish each other's sentences. Um, I, I, I'm worried about where we go from here. Um, I'm worried about the day after we win in Ukraine and what happens then, because I fear there are a lot of people in Washington, where I live, um, in many European capitals, who would just love to get back to business as usual with Russia, right? When in reality, I don't think there's going back. To, I don't think we're going back to the pre-February 24th, 2022 world. So I think on, on, on this sense, I think we have to be really, really careful about this. And again, not to prioritize Russia in this situation. I think what we should be prioritizing is Ukraine, in this situation, getting Ukraine firmly embedded in Western institutions. That means, the, that means NATO. Uh, I'll say it out loud. Um, that means the European Union, which is already, that, that process is already, already underway. Um, but it's not just Ukraine. I think a Russian if Russia's defeated in Ukraine, which I think they will be, then this is going to create what I call a 1989 moment. And we are not ready for this. Right, just like in 1989, when Russia was un, unable to, or the Soviet Union was lost its ability to project power abroad, and that led to freedom for the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Hungarians and the Poles and the Balts and, and everybody else. I think we're going to be in this exact same situation when Ukraine defeats Russia. Um, we're going to see a situation where Russia's ability to project power in Georgia is going to be diminished. Um, so we have the possibility of Georgia returning to the, the pro-Western path that has kind of been knocked off ever since Georgian dream came to power. We're going to see Moldova accelerate 
its its path towards the West under the leadership of, of President Maya Sandu. I even believe we could possibly see a free Belarus um, in the event of a Ukrainian victory, which I think is coming. And we had better get ready for that because we all remember these debates in, in the 90s about NATO enlargement, and I do not use the word expansion, which makes it look like NATO is this empire that's gobbling up countries. The the debates about NATO enlargement um, in the early 1990s, well, we're going to have those on steroids once we see what I think is coming if, and I believe it will happen, Ukraine wins this war. um, And we're going to be, again, it's not going to be just Ukraine knocking on the door. It's going to be Moldova knocking on the door. And it's going to be Georgia knocking on the door again. Um, and it's going to maybe, dare I say it, be Belarus knocking on the door again. And there's going to be a very, very, very brief window of opportunity. And we need to take it briefly on your language question. I think this is a, 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 a tricky issue. I was at RFE when these debates were going on about broadcasting in the Russian language in non-Russian countries, um, in Ukraine or in Georgia or elsewhere. And this is a tricky question because the pragmatic side says, if you want to reach the most people, you have to broadcast in Russian, but you want to, you don't want, you, you want to engage in decolonization and promote the other language. There is not an easy answer to that. I've been in the room when these things were debated and it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. I don't have a clean answer to that. Uh, we're short of time, so I'm afraid I can take just one more question. And Jill, you had your hand up first. So, and please bring your question to Brian after the session, okay? And we can come back to it, I hope. Please. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jill Jordy again from Georgetown and uh, the Wilson Center. Um, Brian, just for um, variety's sake, maybe I'll take a, a slightly different approach. But when you started talking about nuclear weapons after the end of the Soviet Union, Uh, It reminded me of the messiness of that period. And right now we're in a very confusing, chaotic period where it's very, very difficult to tell what's down. I agree with you. After, God willing, that the war ends. But just looking at that period of nuclear weapons, you had, you know, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, and Russia had nuclear weapons. And so... You know, and I covered that period, and it felt like maybe they did the best they could keeping nuclear weapons because of the fear of spread of nuclear weapons. I don't want to get into a debate about that, but just as an example of the confusing part of it. So my question is, uh, when the war in Ukraine finally is over, we hope, um, my focus always is more on Russia because that's my field. What will, how do we prepare to use the messaging from that to convince Russians themselves that their imperial urges have been a mistake? Because they have never come to terms with that. They've never owned up to that part of their history. So is there a way that we can, you know, I would say almost help them to average Russians to understand what they are doing and what they have done? Well, I think, thanks for that question, Jill. Um, The the Russians are going to have to, this is not something we can do for the Russians. They have to do this themselves. Um, we can kind of set the environment and like the, a big question, one of the big questions I'm engaging in in Washington right now with people, members of the diplomatic community is what is the price of admission back to polite society for Russia when this is over? And for me, it is a complete renunciation 
of these imperial designs. Um, Ukraine is off limits, but not just Ukraine. All of the former Soviet territory is off limits. It's not yours, right? And that, but this is something only the Russians can do. What we can do is structure our policies to incentivize that. Um, but I don't. But it's some, not something we can do for the Russians. And, and Nuremberg trials. I think there has to be accountability for the war crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. Absolutely, I think that we would be doing humanity a disservice if we do not prosecute what's going on. I mean, we're, we're, what, what is what's going on in Ukraine is horrific. It's genocide, and this has to be prosecuted. Um, I, I don't want to hear any fears of a kind of a, a, a Weimar situation um, that, 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 that this could be dangerous. I think it's. The opposite is dangerous. It's dangerous not to hold the Putin regime accountable for what it's doing in Ukraine. We'll have to leave it at that, Brian. This background is going to be very helpful as we continue our discussions about the international media environment and what countries are doing, including the Russians themselves. So, uh, Brian Whitmore, thank you very much, and that's the end of this session. Thank you.